1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Aloha, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Anthropology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub, and I will be the host of the channel today. So today we're going to be talking to Amelia Skushpek. Please, uh, Emilka, tell me if I did justice to your last name there. She's the author of Revealing the Invisible Mind, Social Complexities of an Undeveloped Mining Project. And uh, I should say, uh, Amilka, and I have known each other for quite some time. So we're gonna—I'm uh, gonna call her Amilka. She's gonna call me Alex. But if you want to Google the book, Amelia is the official first name and the last name too. Just—just uh, just remind me. Can you say it for the record? What your full name is, so I can give you some respect on that front, Amilka.
0: Sure, of course. It's Amelia Skrzypek.
2: Thank you so much. i, I apologize for for um, doing the best I could on that.
0: You did a great job. <laughs>
2: Thank you. So um, I wonder uh, if you could tell me a little bit about how it is that you came to write this book for, for people who have not had a chance to read it. It's, a, it's an account of a group of people in a relatively rural area of Papua New Guinea and their interactions with a mining company where the mine has not actually opened yet. They're still doing the initial work to decide whether the mine should open. So uh, we'll talk more about the content of that book, but I guess one of the first questions is, how did you come to write this book and how did you get all of the way to uh, this rural area of remote Papua New Guinea? This is uh, really not a a local field site for someone who's originally from Europe and did their field work in the UK. Uh,
0: Yes, I think it's... um... It's a tricky question to answer in a way because I feel now like everything I have ever done has been kind of leading up to this book. And my, I suppose the strict uh, the strict story of it is uh, I did sustainable development in my previous academic life and and was fascinated by the ideas of corporate social responsibility, and then you know, emerged from this immersion in undergraduate and honors course with a with thought that I still have no idea what those terms actually mean. They, they are clearly very powerful, very meaningful to a lot of people. And I really wanted to do a very detailed study on, on the meaning and application of those terms and their effect. Um, and I suppose then a little bit by accident, I in, ended up in the field of anthropology um, and, and never, never really looked back. Um, so I have uh, started a master's program that is going back many, many years ago uh, at the University of St. Andrews. And I was here at a very fortunate time where Jamie Winner was a visiting professor um, and was talking a lot about his experiences. And and, and Tony Crook um, is in the department. There is a very strong Pacific presence here. And um, so over time, I've decided to narrow down my focus on mining, thinking what a fantastic context to be looking at sustainable development in uh, and focus area that is ultimately very, very unsustainable. And I initially wanted to to study one of the projects in South America. Um, and then, just because life works mysterious ways sometimes, Andrew Mutu, the current director of the National Museum in Papua New Guinea, in Port Moresby, came to San Andrews and was talking about this big project, this anticipated project that has been in the making for decades, um, and, and really talking about the lack of information and, and, and the need for research, and, and sold as a very fascinating site. So that was me sold. Uh, that has kind of decided decided the the field project, and and this is how I started my my adventures and my experiences and my work in Papua New Guinea.
2: So um, maybe we could fill in some of the details for this area. You know, um, studying mining in Papua New Guinea, which is something, but that you do and I do. It's, it's uh, a sort of a difficult thing for some people who don't work in the country to wrap their heads around because on the one hand, you're working in an area that is, I mean, uh, quite remote that that's a term that uh, has a sort of a negative connotation and some people would feel a colonial history. But I mean, this is a remote area. And you're using some themes in this book that are really classical anthropological themes, but you're studying mining, which is a very modern topic. So um, Maybe we should just talk a little bit. This is the Frida mine, or the potential Frida mine, and um, it's located in. Uh, remind me, the
0: province. So the mine is located on the border between East Cipic Province and Sandown Province in Papua New Guinea, right there on the border line.
2: And this is a really mountainous region where some people have done a lot of uh, work before. There's a famous article, famous to us. By Dan Jorgensen, which documented the emergence of landowners and mining politics in this area.
0: Yes, absolutely. I think it's you know it's it's geographically a very striking place. Um, so it's right there where where the sea Peak plains meet meet the mountains. So it's spectacularly beautiful, but also, as you say, quite quite remote. Um, the History of the project itself goes back to the 1960s when the deposits were first recorded there during a geological uh, sampling exercise. So really, this is where the story of the project begins in the kind of official and formal timelines, Um, and it's one of the one of the multiple timelines that I'm following through in the book. But from the very beginning, one of the challenges for this particular project was that area in which it is located and the actual deposit is in, in sundown um, has experienced decades extensive um, tribal warfare, local warfare. Um, the, the group territorial boundaries, if you can call them that, have changed and shifted numerous times. Some groups went extinct, other groups, Emerged as a, as a result of that upheaval, um, and, and as you know, uh, any mining company wanting to operate in Papua New Guinea and you know anywhere anywhere else for that matter, one of the challenges for them is to identify the landowners, right? Identify who who is it that that is the custodian of the ground, um, and who are ultimately the the stakeholders in in the sense of people that that companies need to really need to engage with and identify in the project area.
2: Yeah. So this is, may, might be a little bit different from some people's imagination where there is a group of indigenous people. They've been on the land for a long time and they're opposed to mining. This is an area where there's a lot of movement. There's a lot of migration and warfare, and people want the mine to open because for them it's it's the only way to get development. Is that a fair thing to say?
0: I think it's a very thing, fair thing to say, and I think a lot of people find it very surprising. So in most conversations I have about my work and when I talk about Frida and about that project, uh, the most common response I get, get is, you know, it's a great thing you, you're there, this, you know, you can help stop this mine because, you know, people don't want it. Um, and it is not exactly true. It's a very complex, uh, complex situation, complex process. A lot of the people in the in the project area um, have very limited access to basic services and to civic infrastructure, and and have kind of grown grown up with with this understanding uh, that the mining project and and mining development is for them the way to get access to, to those things which they associate with development. So, so be it public services, schools, um, or you know, cash, access to cash economy, uh, education and employment. So there is certainly a lot of support and a lot of factors um, that mean that, uh, that local communities, including Payamo, are working actively with, with the mining companies, of course, they have their own reservations. Uh, of course, there's a lot of kind of politics happening there, um, and they're trying to to stand ground on certain decisions. But overall, the sense is that that mining is desirable, precisely because of that kind of sense of abandonment by the state of Papua New Guinea uh, and and lack of access to to things that you know I think we take we tend to take for granted.
2: Mm, yeah. So uh, I think if people Google, there have been some reports that have been very concerned about the potential environmental impacts of of this mine. But here for people on the ground, this is sort of their chance to get schools, roads, hospitals, and and other stuff which they feel like the the government is not is not providing.
0: It is, and I think geography in a way helps there in that uh, the communities that that live uh, very close to the proposed project uh, location. Uh, They also own grounds up the hills, up the mountains, further up. So the way in which they perceive the the negative environmental impacts, and they are aware that those negative impacts will come as much as they can be, having not experienced them. Um, uh, w- one of the kind of lines of argument is that they will be able to move to the higher ground and maintain their access to hunting grounds and, and to fishing grounds and avoid some of that environmental risk and impact. Um, of course, the same cannot be said for communities further down the river. Frida River is located in a in a very ecologically sensitive area in a tributary of the Sipig River system. Uh, Sipig River over a thousand kilometers long. Um, a very, very rich, both in terms of diversity, biodiversity, but also in kind of culture sense and diversity of people, people who live there, uh, most of whom rely on the river for their livelihoods. Um, and therefore, there is an awful lot of concern from those people further down the river about the environmental impacts, should, should anything go wrong up on site.
2: Yeah, you know, I think a lot of the discussion we've been having so far is about anticipating what could happen um, when the mind is built. And it, it seems to me like this is one of the major themes of your book, you know, that the book is about the freedom mind, But of course, there is no mind. The mind is something that's going to happen in the future. Um, and that the, the title of the book is revealing the invisible mind. So can you tell me a little bit about what it is like to study a mind when when there is no mind and what your argument is about? About what it would mean to reveal a mine that's currently invisible.
0: I think it's uh, you know on the one hand it's uh, I mean it's very clear this mine is not there. It's an exp- advanced exploration project. It has been in exploration stages for for decades now. There is no mining infrastructure. There is no mining pit. Um, there there is nothing being constructed that that we would associate with with a big mine. And I think you know the revealing the invisible mine is both my attempt in this book. To, to show different perspectives and, and to show ways in which this mine is being revealed to the people uh, or they're hoping to elicit this big revelation of where, where the mine arrives. But in a way, I think it's also reflective of my own kind of journey writing it when, when you know, I arrived very much, uh, you know, okay, so there isn't a mine here. But over time, I started really questioning, you know, what is a mine? because the, the local communities, the way they talked about it and they talked about the mine, they talked about Frida, uh, was very different to this clear-cut differentiation of a mine life cycle project uh, used by the mining company and the government representatives um, to, to differentiate between those, those different stages. Um, so I think one of the arguments, what I'm challenging the readers of this book to, to imagine is you know, what if this mine is there, it just hasn't revealed itself, uh, and if so, what is the mine, right? And I think this is the, to me, this is one of the main themes in this book: is asking a question, studying a, a, a mine in a in those very early pre-mining, pre-construction context. What is it that that is actually being studied, and what is it that is being discussed?
2: Mm. Yeah, I mean, the way that you describe it in the book, the Payamo people, who are the the hosts, or I guess the landowners of the mine have this sense that the mine is there and has not been revealed you you, you said earlier um, that according to one timeline mine the mine started in the 1960s with some prospecting work but they have their own timelines and their own theories about the mine's creation and when it was created which is which is different from that
0: it is very different. It is very different, and it goes all the way back to the time of first ancestors, who who have travelled the lands and who started the different groups um, in the in the area, and it goes back to the to the mythology of those ancestors and uh, and gifts they left behind. The what it has since already been revealed to people as those massive gold and copper deposits that are being guarded um, and looked after also to be, uh, to be demonstrated in the form of, of mining in form of development when, when the time comes. So there is uh, a lot of a sense of, yes, you know, those minerals are already there. Uh, there is local mythology and stories about how those minerals ended up there, who brought them there. It wasn't a coincidence. Uh, it was a, it was a f- form of, of a gift, a form of a lineage there. Uh, Which means that to them, you know, the the talk about mine follows very different temporalities. And uh, when I put forward to them, you know, when I arrived and I said, okay, but, you know, I I hear that this mine mine doesn't exist. The sense I got is for, you know, for a lot of those people, most of them were born after the exploration has started, most of the people who are actively involved with the mind grew up already in the shadow of this project that doesn't, doesn't yet physically, physically exist. And for them, it's very difficult to kind of understand and conceptualize how something that has already changed their reality and their world and, and has had such a great impact cannot yet exist.
2: Yeah, it's had an effect. You you use this term "effect" a lot, which I think sort of traces back to your your genealogical influences and and the work of Marilyn Strathern and others. That the the mind must exist in some sense because it shaped people's lives. This this process of preparation for the mind has taken literally decades. So it's it's become the the mind or the future mind or maybe the invisible present mind has been the sort of the narrative which has shaped the life in the area for for decades.
0: Yes, I think it very much is, and I think this is my academic genealogy, as, as you referred to it, um, also has has influenced, you know, the, the Strathernian uh, kind of school of thinking through through perspective of relations, right? And one of the one of the theoretical groundings emerging from from that school of thought here is what if what if we look at a mind as, as a social relation, right, rather than as a uh, as an economic project, as, as an industrial, um, an infrastructural project, uh, what, how then can we study that, that thing, right? The mine as a social relation.
2: Mm, yeah. The, the valuable thing about that perspective is that it lets you take people seriously when they say things like, you know, the ancestors have put gold in the ground. There would be many approaches to mining, which would just say like, oh, that's, you know that's a clever story, but obviously not true because we have geologists who know how this was formed. But um, but your perspective allows us to understand not whether those statements are true and false in their denotational contents, but how those stations, how those statements sort of create roles or elicit relationships between local landowners and the company of a certain sort. And the purpose of the statements is as much to create those relationships, or I guess relations are, they're called, um, as it is to accurately describe the formation of ore bodies or the distant past.
0: Yes, and I think you know the, 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 the purpose of the stories is to, to create relations, but also you know it's a two-way system. So it's kind of this ongoing reframing and experimentation, right with, with, with social structures, with, with affiliations, with lineages with with ancestral stories. Um, all of this is kind of ongoing and in a constant state of flux.
2: Mm, yeah, the, the flip side of creativity and is instability. And there's a, a strong sense, I think, in a lot of Png that if you fix meaning once and for all, then you're gonna create winners and losers. And that's that that's a, a downside in a place where you value um, egalitarianism. so in in this situation, one of the things that people are doing is they're constantly, they're not just trying to re- repurpose their old stories for the current moment where they take, you know, mythological tales and say, oh, we can now use these tales to be officially listed in a book as landowners, they're reinterpreting the tales, tell me if I get this right, to recognize that the true meaning of the tale is not what they thought, but it now has a new meaning that's been revealed to them because of the present circumstance. So they're constantly understanding for the first time what an old, what they would say is an old meaning was in the present. Am I, am I getting that right?
0: Yes, you are. Maybe with, with the exception of for the first time, I think it might be more close, better described as understanding again. I think, you know, a, a, a lot of those stories are kind of living stories. So it's not that this is the first time they they, they see the, the meaning of it. It's the first time they see this meaning of it, if if that makes sense. Um but absolutely, it's kind of going back to, to the stories they've had. It's, it's uh, finding new pathways of, of interpreting those stories, of finding linkages between stories. Uh, yeah. And it works, I think, in both ways. It works in, in, in a very kind of utilitarian, pragmatic way in which they're presenting themselves in a particular way to the mining company in order to engage with them in a way that mining companies you know uh, are able to do that through those labels of we are the landowners, we are the impact impact community. Um, but I think it kind of also works on, on this very kind of internal internal basis, right? And kind of in internal internal politics and and trying to learn more about themselves and explain uh, themselves and and things that that happen to them and that have happened to them. Um, through those stories,
2: yeah. I mean, I, I guess if you represent yourselves to others, it's not just because you want them to have a certain kind of knowledge of you, but also because you you want yourself to be seen as a certain kind of person, or you want your community to be seen as a certain kind of community. So there's a there's a kind of um, a kind of moral regard that you're sort of hoping when you when you make yourself a subject in this way f- for for other people to look at, and and in the case of the Paiamo a uh, uh, the the, <laughs> Sorry. the PMO, yes. <laughs> PMO, thank you. Um, you know, w- one of the things that I think you deal with in this book very well is insisting on the one hand that there's been a huge radical change in their lives from being remote people in a subs- you know a subsistence area of Papua New Guinea to sort of suddenly and you know dealing with the forefront of modern capitalism, and that that's a huge change. But then at the same time, you want to try to stay away from extreme narratives of first contact or you know, total radical change, which underplays like their agency and their ability to understand what's happening to them. So, I I guess part of the part of the way that they represent themselves to others is also their own attempt to grapple with the the social changes that they've been introduced to.
0: I think uh, you you're absolutely right there, and I think it's a way in which they are. Um they're they're using their frames of reference right to to understand and to I- explain to themselves things that emerged outside of that frame of reference that, that have appeared and arrived i think in writing this book um and it it took me a very long time to to write it and to find the the, the right way to to tell the story uh, acknowledging that there is no single right way i think it was incredibly important for me to on the one hand sh- show them as as this group that has always been changing, has always been evolving, and I have been through some dramatic experiences in the past, such as the, the tribal warfare, but at the same time highlight just the magnitude uh, and the scale of changes that they have experienced in, in the relative recent history in, that co- in the context of, of, of mining um, uh, and of industrial, industrial development that, that they are uh, anticipating um, and that they are discussing on a daily basis.
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off. Mm. Yeah,
2: I, I think for a lot of people who study um, the mining industry in Papua New Guinea, this issue of how you represent yourself to a bureaucratic force such that you can be a suitable recipient of benefits is a is a big issue because it almost always involves sort of shaping yourself for that force when what exist what existed before you know really did not quite fit the mold so. So one of the things they're doing is they're trying to they're trying to meet the expectations, something like that.
0: Very much so, and you know, and you mentioned that that article by Dan Jorgensen earlier, and it's, it developed some of those themes, right, about how it will always prove possible to find those landowning clans or whatever categories we we apply here, uh, particularly if people have interest in 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 making it happen, right, in in presenting themselves in that particular form. I think one thing that uh, that really fascinated me in the field was how on the one hand they had to present themselves as this very neatly structured, right, and an entity. But on the other hand the the, the there was this acknowledgement that this is just our presentation and yes it will change again and yes this will happen and i write in a book about the document that Payamo prepared um a few years back to do precisely that it's called the the big book of, of Payamo sane and it uh, presents this incredibly fluid um and, and complex social group in terms of family trees in terms of delineation of clans uh, but if you look very closely in, in the acknowledgements or in the in the opening of the documents, which sets it out that this is the facts, right, this is the, the truth and the facts of the matter, it does say there that, you know, but we reserve the right to update this and to change this, which I think uh, creates this really nice interplay if you're looking at the same thing from the perspective of, say, a mining company or a government official for whom it's a document that reflects facts and they take it at a face value and for granted. Whereas for the Payamo, this document is very different. It shows of their capacity uh, to present themselves in, in a way and in almost kind of enter and invite, um, invite the, the company into particular kinds of engagements and, and relations. But at the same time, they know that this is kind of a, a snapshot at one point in time. Uh, for one particular purpose, right? So, so it's incredibly interesting from anthropological perspective to study to study documents uh, and how they are interpreted and and what they mean in those contexts.
2: Hmm. Could Could you maybe spell that out a, a little bit more? So, on the one hand, the the company sees that this book has a, a set of, I guess it's maybe you would call it a kind of knowledge, of, an accurate knowledge of who the Piamo are, but for the for the PiMO, it's the book is proof of their ability to 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 move the mo- to move the company to make the company open the mind. For them, it's not so much about the knowledge that's in it, but about the the relation that's in it. Could you maybe spell that out for people who are not familiar with this concept of relation and elicitation and effect?
0: I think it is about both those things. So on the uh-huh. one hand, uh, the book does present stories that, that that are very important ancestral narratives that 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 have been present for a while and 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 are you know shifting every so often, but, but speak to the core of of, of the Paiemo history and and who they are and uh, and how the world came came to be, um, and certainly you know there there is if you're assessing the kind of the factuality and 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 whether this a document shows correct information insofar as it talks about people who are there and insofar it talks about the names within the community of different groupings and lineages, that information is very much there. Um, but I think that the, the purpose of it was for, on the one hand to, to, to present that information, but on the other hand, to present it in a way in which uh, that knowledge could be made effective I think in mm. every context when you have a lot of different stakeholders looking for different kinds of knowledge and different kinds of information um, and, and they figured it out you know, over the past 60 years, um, that telling this incredibly long, complex ancestral story interrupted with songs as they might do in the evenings in Paupe, in, in, in the village houses, Will not have the same effect and 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 the same kind of imp- not so much importance, but the same understanding if they try to present it to to company officials, you know, people who don't have that intimate knowledge um, uh, of their sociality, of their relations, of the world there. So I think it's 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 trying to do both, and certainly there is a, a lot of talk in Paupe about capacity and about their ability to engage with companies, uh, plural, because there have been many companies involved in the project over over the decades, and with the government, um, in a way that receives uh, some kind of affirmation, right? Positive response. Yes, we have mm. heard you. Yes, we know this is what, what what you're saying here.
2: Yeah, there's a kind of recognition politics, which is both about... The political economy of trying to get resources, but also there's a kind of morality they want—they want to be recognized as being the kind of people that they believe themselves to be by uh, the outsiders. Is that right? There's a there's a kind of a a moral thing or some some dynamic of recognition there. Am I? Am there, I, there is, that?
0: Uh, I yeah, I, I would say you're you're right in you know, that. There's certainly this kind of moral moral theme to that recognition. There is also, you know, quite quite a clear political theme to it. Uh, and as i as I write in the book, uh, there is, uh, and I should mention, uh, ju- just in, for, for clarity, the Payamo are not the only community, the only group in that area. They are not the only impact community of the project. Um, there are landowners just outside of the of the main project kind of area where, where the deposits are, where the pit is. There are two other groups, the Mianmin and the Telefomin, uh, both of which are much more numerous. And Telefomin, of course, have experiences as well, um, in the in, uh, Oktedi mine and, 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 and mining over Tabubil side, side, um, which, uh, which informs, I think, a lot of their strategies. So there seems to be this competition for recognition between those three groups, right? Mm. So there's an element of local politics in all of this. And when the, when the document was written and when the document was presented, uh, the local Payamo leaders repeated very clearly a couple of times that one of the great things about this document is that they are the first ones to present their knowledge that way. That I, I even though the telephone are much more numerous and and uh, you know have much m- more kind of educated members of of community in the kind of tr- you know formal education sense that they are the ones who've managed to make it happen. Uh, And to pull through that relational theme, they are the ones to make it happen because they were able to mobilize uh, a relationship with a person who is from the area, who has uh, kinship links with the PYAMO, but who was working in Brisbane and had access to GIS and technologies and was able to help them uh, in in that process.
2: Yeah, and uh, one of the things I noticed in... um what you said a bit ago is that it's really, it's what one of the focuses is really what what effect the knowledge has. Uh, it, so the, 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 the book was important because it would have an effect when the knowledge was presented, not necessarily that the, the book sort of contained the, the final definitive account uh, of the Piamo. So that, that notion of effect is, is central
0: the notion of effect is central um, and it kind of you know leads lives back into this uh, this notion of revelation right in that mm. in in that all those attempts to present knowledge all those engagements and and their entire entanglement with, with the frida river project uh, things happen and and people talk so so those events took place but we don't know what they mean we don't know if they were meaningful we don't know how are we to know in the present until we we see the effects of them and we'll be able to fully understand at some point in the future or, or maybe possibly never.
2: Mm, yeah, so so there's this sense that um, you, you have all of this stuff that happened in the past and you think you know what its relevance has been, but now it might be relevant in some other way. It might have some other effect in the other way. And um, when you... Realize that it can create a mind, or it can entice a mind into being created. Suddenly, you realize that that was the meaning all along. You don't you don't see that as an innovation in meaning, where you're repurposing these things for a new purpose. You see yourself as recovering the original meaning. Is that right?
0: Or, 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 or you know, realizing that this realizing that there was something that was always there. It just remained hidden from you. Uh, and yeah. this is, I think, the way in which they're thinking about this mine as well. You know, it it is there; it's just hidden from them.
2: Yeah. So, so there's this. I'm I'm sorry. I'm trying to do this from my framework here, my mental framework, which is not theirs or yours. So, so there's a sense in which that w- when they find out that these myths are about gold rather than some other thing that historically they were about, they realize that that's it's been revealed to them that that was the meaning of the myth all along or a part of the meaning all along and it's it's all already been revealed to them so what we might think of as an innovation in meaning or a transformation in meaning is to them a revelation of an always present but previously hidden meaning is that right
0: that yeah that that is okay. correct that is my interpretation okay. that is my interpretation of it and this is how i came to understand it um, I think you know. In, in this book is as much, uh, you know, the the story of the project, and I and I did my best to make sure that it reflects my experiences in the in the field and and presents it in, in a way that is um, has great integrity, also the kind of research integrity. But I think you know, it's also inevitably, as every book is, it is it is uh, in a way my story of of learning about those things and of um, of, of figuring those things out, which I think well, is.
2: Yeah, I guess, I guess some, some people might say, you know, Amilka, you don't have to be humble and say that this was just your story. This has actually always been the story, but you're just now realizing it.
0: I think so. And, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I, and I do, and I do use that, uh, uh, one particular occasion in the book when, one uh, Pastor Jacob, one of the local leaders, um, you know, talks to me for the first time about this book of Payamo that this person in Brisbane is uh, is putting together. And then he says to me, but but you know about it. You've already seen it. Um, and I was going, "It's like, no, I've, I don't know. I've never heard about this. I have never seen it. And it wasn't until much later that I remembered that a few months back he did show me some pieces of paper, right? Uh, some kind of loose documentations and diagrams not explaining to me at the time what they were. But yes, I have seen it. I just didn't know it. I did not realize that I did.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's, I think one of the things that's valuable about the book is that you're able to really understand the the logic, the or cultural logic, I guess you might say, that's behind so many of the things that these landowners do, rather than Sort of just doing like what I might think of as a more political, economic, or a more sociological account, which I think in my own work, maybe I'm I'm a little guilty of, where you don't really have the capacity um, to delve deeply and to understand what what is going on in, in terms of some of the deeper cultural logics at play. For instance, I was struck. You, you say in the book that. You know, there are these uh, ancestral mythological figures who have public names and secret names. And then it it turns out that they will tell the company the secret names or they will say the secret names sometimes. But it it doesn't matter because the company know the name it because they don't know how to they don't know how to use the name. Right. And I thought you can correct me if that's not an accurate understanding of of the story. But but this idea that you could know the name, but it still wouldn't be efficacious because you you didn't know how to use it or you weren't aware of the deeper meaning. I thought that is really, uh, that's not how I think about names. And and I thought you were able to make sense of that in, in a way that was powerful.
0: Uh, oh, thank you. Yes, I think, you know, it talks about, uh, and I go into quite a bit of detail about this in the book about knowledge practices, and it goes all the way back to, to the kind of cult houses and, and traditional religions. But there is an element of, you know, of the kind of utterance in terms of the a, f- a form of a word, right? a form of a name um, that on its own ha- doesn't really mean much and cannot really do much unless you either know the meaning behind it or have the relationships that, that that can kind of make it make it more effective. So, in in this context, when you're talking about the Masalai the land spirits who who are present in the landscape, um, and who all quite rightly have have two sets of names. They have those hidden names and those public names. Um, but the hidden names can also be revealed to people who don't know that they're powerful. I think it's all about ability to recognise. Um, value that only comes with a certain level of immersion um and and care and and time spent and and you know understanding um of of, of what's happening uh behind you know below the surface uh, and behind all of that and to be honest you know i've had i, I was reflecting about it uh, a little while ago it was my experience with with those stories, with the hidden names, and I allude to it in in the book, is that when I first arrived, and uh, you know, I was very much somebody from the outside. Um, and it is a remote area, you know, the, the visitors, especially people who, you know, are prepared and, and willing and wanting to, to live and learn with the people uh, are, are not are not very common. So initially, I you know, people would come to me and tell me those hidden names without thinking twice about it. But the longer I lived there and, and the more I, I figured out about the knowledge systems, about what, what those names actually entail what kind of, um, of meaning they carry and the, and the power they carry within them. When people started to notice that, that I was realizing all those frameworks, suddenly those names were becoming hidden to me again right <laughs> except 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 for, for for my kind of core for the Malefale, which is which is one of the lineages uh, in the in the community and and the people that i um uh, that i lived with and interacted with the most uh, uh because because of sharing sharing households um so there is certainly this element of of what is being said to whom in the kind of relational terms but also, this very, and, and in the book, you know, I, I, I talk about uh, Frederick Barth and, 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 and Tony Crook and Roger Lochman and their kind of interpretations of what a secret is. And, and, uh, and I arrived at the, uh, you know, I state a claim here that all that my focus has shifted from what a secret is to what the secret does. I think that became to me a much more exciting ethnographic. Ethnographic question in that context, uh, including the secret names of the land spirits.
2: Yeah, we're back to that concept of effect. It seems. Yeah, it's really interesting.
0: We are. I think you know this is this is the the theme running through the book. But I think it's also representatives of of my experiences there, uh, w- watching watching the Paiamo interacting uh, with with other people, with other members of other communities, with the company of the government. But also the way in which they they tried to to teach me about about their world, right and and give me glimpses to it and help me understand, even though I have to admit sometimes uh, you know it was very clumsy when i when I look back at it and I would ask questions which which they were very surprised by. They were like, you know why would you ask that question? This question is it's not important here it's 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 totally insignificant here <laughs> so so it was it was uh, uh, a, a privilege to learn from them, but I'm also very grateful for their patience with me as I tried to figure those things out.
2: You know, I should say, actually, uh, I hadn't thought that we would hit this topic, but it, it is worth saying that you're very reflective in the book. You you often begin the chapters taking readers in with a story where you're present and you're talking about your host family. We we get to know them. We recognize their names across chapters you are willing to describe yourself as a, as a, a fallible person who sometimes makes mistakes. Um, I think at one point you uh, talk about being ill, you know? So, so, I mean, one of the things that, that uh, really struck me about the book was your ability to, on the one hand, deal with these very obscure and abstract analytic terms like relations, transformations and uh, revelations. But at the same time, it's, it's uh it gives you a sense of being there in that Clifford Geertzian sense, and and the photographs are also marvelous. I, I have to say, uh, I I did not know that you were such a skilled photographer.
0: <laughs> oh, thank you very much. I think, <laughs> I think you know, it's it's a combination of two factors. I think um, any any field work like this, any research project like this, uh, you know, it's it's a big event in in an academic career. But it's also, you know, a very important moment in in a person's life, right? It, it carries that significance there. So I think it's it's very difficult to to remove oneself from from writing about it. Uh, I don't necessarily think it would be very responsible of me to to remove myself from it. So what I strive to do in the book, and you know, there's a couple of moments there when I say,s like, look, I this is how I understand it, but I'm also trying to provide the reader with enough kind of ethnographic material. For them also to be able to to make come to their own conclusions, right, and and to figure out for themselves what is it, what it is that was that was happening there. So so, so I suppose yeah, one is this kind of self-reflection and placing myself in the book is inevitability of that of that research and writing process. But also yes, I, I it it was in a way an attempt to to bring those people closer to the reader and to 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 help the reader see them as people uh you know not not kind of subjects of study uh, n- and not something that is kind of detached in any way uh but 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 as 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 fellow human beings you know mm, and wonderful yeah. wonderful ones at that
2: and it's it's um it can be difficult in this area we have not talked too much about this but when we talked earlier about warfare and extinction i mean this is an area where people would kill and eat each other so um, in in many ways, one of the difficulties of doing research in this area is portraying people as human when they they um, do things which we normally associate with the most outlandish and exoticizing kind of anthropology. This is this is an area where these where these kinds of things happen. So that's always that's always something that you you have to reckon with when you when you write from this perspective, where you're trying to show people in their full humanity. I guess.
0: Yeah, and you, and I'm not trying to, to sugarcoat it uh, in this book, and I talk about uh, you know individual uh, figures in the community who were famed for for being warriors uh, and everything that kind of entail that entailed, but I think my um, also because in in my methodology, you know, I, it is very much from ethnography, village-based ethnography from the perspective of the Paiamo, but in my work, I also made a decision that in order to understand that relationship. Um, and the way in which those different kind of worldviews um, collide and make sense of one another. I have also done some some, some work, some research work amongst the on the ground company personnel um, and, and interviewed some, some government representatives as well. And I think in order to do that and to do that, uh, again with, with integrity, I, I strived to, as much as I could, you know not not to judge, to, to present things and to talk about things. Uh, but not to kind of add value judgments, personal value judgments, to to those things.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think you do a good job of being frank in terms of you know what you think and and uh, what other people think, without without having to become too moralistic um, in in a way that would sort of show you to be tendentious. I mean, I think one of the one of the things that theory allows you to do is to avoid making difficult decisions about how you represent people. You know, if you, if you write in your ethnography, you know, the Piamo often talk to me about how they could elicit relations through transformations of knowledge. You know, I'm just like, I guarantee you, no one ever, you know, while you're drinking tea in the morning, someone says, you know, Amilka, I was just thinking about eliciting relations. Like that's not what people actually say, but it's always much easier to use that language to get away from making some of the tough decisions about about writing the book and and saying things like people want a mine, you know, and and in some sense don't have a lot of agency, but then in some other sense they are active agents of their history, and and so I think um, being willing to to do that thick description work, especially naming individuals who you know who are going to have access to this book at some point, that. That takes a, a certain amount of in, of integrity or a willingness, I guess, at least to make mistakes.
0: Yes, I think one of the uh, one of the processes in, in you know, or moments in, in in this book writing um, uh, process. I was very fortunate in that a couple of years ago I was able to take a draft of the book with me to Paupe uh, and and spend a lot of time sitting you know outside the house in, in a publicly accessible, place going through the draft and going through the manuscript and uh as much as i could you know translating the translating the ethnography um the theory parts were were more difficult to to kind of engage and translate in those contexts but i did my best to say you know so this is what i write and and this is the kind of material and and this is some of the conclusions that i'm drawing here which was on the one hand a petrifying process because i was half expecting people to turn around and say you know Oh, you got it all wrong. That was that would be the greatest nightmare. Fortunately, they didn't. Um, they, they they were quite excited and um, uh, and uh, yeah, it was it was stressful, but but I think incredibly important moment for me as well. You know, taking taking the work that they have all contributed to back to them in the first instance before you know publishing it and 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 sending it out to the big wide world.
2: Mm. And you know, in the future. Um- because there could potentially be a mine there your descriptions of these ways of life could be precedential and in court cases or negotiations uh, and hence have a tremendous monetary and uh, just psychological and and personal force in shaping the community's future so you had to be aware of the those potential possibilities uh, and the way in which this writing could be taken up in the future in the way that you know something written about myth in a, in a rural place where your subject is not going to suddenly be worth hundreds of millions of dollars, really would not have to, to grapple with.
0: Yes, yeah, so I think, you know, there's, there's, there's uh, you know, kind of do, doing my best. But also, you know, in, in the writing process, I think every, every person who, who's preparing a manuscript, uh, there's countless decisions to be made about what to put in, what to take out. Um, there were certain things that that emerged during my fieldwork that uh, uh, that I thought were inappropriate for the book or I was explicitly asked not to uh, not to put in, but that people wanted me to know about those which um, which which again is, is just part of the building that story and uh, and I agree with you, I think in the context when we are talking about one of the biggest undeveloped gold and copper deposits in the world we are talking a project that if it takes off uh you know there's going to be a huge amount of money at stake um and there is going to be a lot of contestation no doubt about how to distribute this money um i'm fully aware that the that this work this book and, and 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 those stories might be might be used um also in ways that i cannot control right i mean anyone can pick it pick it up now Um, so there, there is a a sense of responsibility there, um, which is why, you know, it was so important for me to, to take it back to the community and make sure that they also feel comfortable with me, um, with me talking about certain things. Mm, Yeah. Or at
2: least they feel comfortable with you talking about certain things now, you know, one of the themes of your book is the way that people discover hidden meanings in works through time and, um, one of the things maybe that anthropologists are tempted to do is to try to fix the meaning of the text in some way that they think is appropriate, but then they find out that in the future, it, it, its hidden meaning gets reinterpreted all the time. So, you know, it, it might be that five or 10 years down the road, people suddenly decided that they did not always want along want all along for this to be portrayed this way or that way. And I guess in some sense, that dynamic of revelation and, and innovation slash uh, recognition of pre-existing knowledge, depending on how you want to look at it, that's something that that a- ethnographers or anybody who writes nonfiction has to deal with as much as the paiamo do when they're trying to make themselves legible to the mind.
0: Absolutely. So I think, you know, one of the ways in which I tried to, to deal with it in my own thinking about this text and writing is, is, is to present that material as something that is, you know, kind of in flux and in motion um and to to allow for for that to evolve right with the people um and and with future events um and as you say those things will be reinterpreted the the changing uh the changing changes in in paupe in paiamo at the moment also mean that the, the elder leaders um are mourning the lack of interest from the younger people with regards to their tradition um, and some of those stories. And, and one of the leaders, uh, when I was in, in Paupe last, a couple of years ago, said to me afterwards, it's like, you know, make sure some of the copies are here because if the youngsters are no longer interested in our stories, then at least when they grow up and they become wiser and they start developing interest, they'll be able to read it and they will know what we told you.
2: Mm, yeah. I mean, in some ways, your book is kind of like the big book of Paimo and that it has, you know, a description of who everybody is. But of course, that could always be changed or reinterpreted in the future.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Mm. Well, uh, thanks so much for this interview. I don't want to take up too much of your time. But before I let you go, can you tell me a little bit about what your research work has been like since this publication of this book? Do you have any current projects that you're working on?
0: I do so. Um, since, since my the bulk of my work at Frida, I have I have done uh, some work at a couple of other mining projects in Papua New Guinea, looking at stakeholder engagement and kind of co-creational knowledge in 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 uh, engagement scenarios. Uh, but most recently, I have actually turned my attention back to Frida, uh, but further down the river. And my current research project is looking at. Um, at, a, at a public response um, uh, and review of a document uh, produced by, by the company and submitted to the Guinean government as part of the mining application process called the Environmental Impact Statement. It's a, it's a fascinating document also because it has to assess impacts that have not yet taken place um, and evaluate impacts of a mind that hasn't yet been constructed. Uh, so, in my work, I'm looking at the way in which that that public review of the document has uh, has taken place, and and what kind of people got involved, and and how networks emerged around it, and what kind of what kind of themes emerged through that process.
2: And and do you see some similar dynamics to what you've seen at Frida, uh, where you're sort of continuing to use this re- revelation framework, or do you think maybe the different cultural logics down there um, make things happen in a slightly different way?
0: I've entered this project very open-minded in full-on acknowledgement that, you know, it's a different kind of research. It's a different kind of group of people. Uh, And this current research also, you know, because of of the travel restrictions uh, with with, with the COVID pandemic, it's a very kind of uh, different kind of field work. It's mostly online interviews, focus groups. Um, So I'm trying to... uh, navigate that that terrain and that and that methodology at the moment whilst engaging with as many people who took place in the process as I can.
2: Wow amazingly I forgot about COVID in the process of our being in the Central Highlands of Papua New Guinea. So you're can you tell me a little bit about that? You're you're Skyping in or you're zooming into rural CPIC headwaters and asking people what they think about environmental impact statements? That sounds fascinating.
0: I think, you know, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not, I've not started the actual field work yet. It's all been the groundwork and the prep work so far and and, uh, and the stakeholder mapping. Uh, so some of it is speaking to, uh, there is an, a non-governmental organization, an indigenous group called Save the CPIC who have started a, a campaign. Uh, as, and as part of that campaign have been vocal in response to the environmental impact statement. Some hoping to be able to speak to some of, some of their leaders uh, where technology where technology allows, um, but it's also talking to to politicians involved, talking to some uh, some of our colleagues, some expert academics who have uh, conducted independent review of individual chapters. Uh, so so just drawing the network of, of people who who got involved, why they got involved, what what effect they think it has, and ultimately you know asking. First of all, asking the question about accessibility of the process, and and I under I completely get the irony about accessibility to my research process uh, as well in all of this. Um, but also, you know, if there is one theme that continues through that work is looking at one event at one thing from different perspectives and try to take each one of those perspectives equally equally seriously. Um, I think my sense at the moment from from just doing the the, the groundwork is that. That the main discrepancy that I can see so far is that the environmental impact statement answers the question of can this mine be built. This is this is how it's designed. This is how it's set up. Whereas the public review process answer answers the question should this mine be built, um, which which creates a very interesting dynamic.
2: Yeah. Wow. Well, it sounds fascinating. I I look forward to uh, hearing more about that research. And uh, thank you uh, once again for the book. So, Amilka, thank you very much, and I'll let you go.
0: Thank you for having me. Thank you.
1: With lucky
2: landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered
2: here today to... Has anyone seen The Bride and Groom?